Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm joined on the podcast this week by Richard Harries to talk about his new book, The Shaping of a Soul, A Life Taken by Surprise. It's published by John Hunt Publishing and is available to buy from the Church Times Bookshop, operated by the Church House Bookshop. In a review of the book in the Church Times, Stephen Platten wrote, The pages breathe throughout a certain confidence, but failures are not swept away, and the writing is permeated by a consistent generosity. Lord Harry's was Bishop of Oxford from 1987 to 2006, after which he became a crossbench life peer in the House of Lords. He's the author of more than 40 books on art, literature, politics, social issues, morality and theology. He's also a frequent contributor to the Church Times. Richard Harris, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Your book is about a life taken by surprise. I suppose one of the first surprises in the book is that you um, became a committed Christian and went on to be ordained. Um, I was thinking your upbringing wasn't particularly religious and, and how therefore did your sort of involvement with, with faith come about? Well, Ed, it was a very, very mysterious pr- process, as you indicated. I didn't have a particularly religious upbringing. My parents were hugely supportive later on, uh, but we didn't go to church when I was young. And indeed, my mother complained that she couldn't even get uh, my father into church for Christmas Day for 20 years or so. I can only once remember to going to Sunday school and once going to church where we were told there was a very outstanding visiting preacher and I went along and I just thought it was a bit of bad ham acting, you know, had absolutely no contact at all. But when I was at Sandhurst, I remember the thought coming into my mind, if Christianity is true, it had better be at the centre of my life. If it's untrue, best to have nothing to do with it. And gradually it began to take hold of me. I started to gravitate to friends for whom the Christian faith meant a lot, some of whom had been wanting to be ordained or decided not to not to be, but people for whom the Christian faith was, was serious. And I mo- started to move in those circles. It was a gradual process. And I think it's best summed up in some lines from the 14th century mystical work, The Cloud of Unknown, which said it includes the four quartets, the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, the drawing of this love and the voice of that's that's what happened to me. But then one day when I was in the local library taking up my usual novel by Hardy or Stundahl or somebody, I picked up a a book of essays by Roman Catholic priests entitled Why I Was Ordained. Most mysterious, I should do that. And when I'd read it, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be funny if one day I was ordained? Once that thought had got in, it wouldn't let go. It kept on coming back every few months. And there I was serving in Germany. We had a vast army in Germany in those days. And I was about to go up to Cambridge in order to read engineering at the army's expense. And I thought to myself, when I retire as a general on a nice fat pension, wouldn't it be nice to spend my days as a country parson? I genuinely thought that. I promise you that thought came up. And then slap bang, immediately after came the words, well, if that's what you're meant to be doing, you better do it now. And it was literally like a volcano exploding inside me. And that's the phrase I use 
uh, in, in my book. I could do no other, like Martin Luther, I could do no other, it precipitated me out. I went up to Cambridge with no money instead of being paid for by the, by the army. I lost my place at one college because they wouldn't, didn't have any theologians. I had to write round a groveling letter round to all the colleges, seeing whether anybody would, would have me. Uh, but you know, it was a very, very powerful experience. I obviously needed a powerful experience to get me moving. And, and you, you mentioned you were at Sandhurst, so you envisaged a military career. What did, what did being at Sandhurst teach you? How did it shape you? I can tell you exactly what it taught me. To be on parade, in good order, on time. And that has been absolutely invaluable. <laughs> I can get dressed in about two seconds flat. You know, you couldn't afford to be late and you couldn't afford to be in bad order. I have to say, not all my curates whom I've trained over the years, when they come out of theological college, had that kind of sense. I had to impart a little bit of that training uh, training uh, to, to them. <laughs> um, I think, no, that's quite a serious, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a professional job, whatever you're feeling inside, uh, you're, you're, you've got to be there and you've got to be there as a professional. Let's ask about your time at Cambridge. You went to Selwyn College to, to study theology. I mean, you talk in the book about um, a, a very significant influence on you was the philosopher Donald MacKinnon. Could you, yeah. you say a bit about how, how he influenced you, how his thinking shaped you? Yes, he was a most extraordinary man. I mean, a very eccentric man, but actually influenced a whole range of people at Cambridge, including a lot better people like me, like Rowan Elliott Williams, for example. I think, uh, first of all, he taught me really to be serious about the truth. I mean, that sounds a very funny thing to say, but there was absolutely no floundering around with, with him. He also influenced me very much on the resurrection because uh, he believed that Christianity was much closer to Marxism than it was to he he Hegelianism or any kind of idealism. Uh, and he thought actually Christianity was about asserting something to be true, and one of the things that, was certain that he thought that Christianity was asserting was actually that the tomb was found empty. I mean, he thought the truth or the falsity of these statements really mattered. And the other was his inaugural lecture was called The Borderlands of Theology. And he said, theology in the modern world can only be done on the borderlands where you feel the incursions from the other side of the border. And I've always tried to do my theology on the borderlands, on mm -hmm. the interface of Christianity and wider culture, wider culture in all its sense, including the arts, poetry and, and um, paintings and so on. I believe Donald McKinnon also spoke about the, having, having to reckon with the reality of evil in the world, and that that's been a key part of your thinking, hasn't it? Exactly, exactly. He taught us to be very, very real about evil. And obviously, we're in our generation are hugely aware of the, uh, of, of, of the Holocaust. And uh, for me, the, the existence of evil and the, the existence of so suffering in the world has always been the great qu question mark against the Christian way. And one continues to wrestle with it to the end of one's life, of course. I think you also write about how Donald McKinnon's influence, um, I don't know if protected you, but sort of uh, influenced you when it came to some of the sea of faith thinking and the honest to God theology in the 60s. Yes, yes, did, did you yes. find that unconvincing? Yes. And when uh, um, Honest to God was published, I thought it was a very helpful book for a lot of people to, to try help locate God in their own life somewhere. I thought from a pastoral point of view, it was a very helpful book. But from a philosophical book point of view, I thought that actually it floundered around because, as you rightly suggest, Donald McKinnon really influenced me to believe that actually... In the, in the end, in the Christian faith, you're saying certain things are true, certain things are untrue. Uh, and 
honest to God, rather rather fudged around on that kind of question, I think. Do you write something that um, struck me that regarding ordination, you say, I, I certainly wouldn't even be put forward for a selection conference these days. I mean, wh- No, I, 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 I wouldn't. That? I wouldn't because, I mean, I didn't have any experience of Christian congregations. I was in the art. I went to church. But I didn't have any experience of an ordinary congregation, uh, and uh, I certainly hadn't had any any at home, and I had so no no real experience of of church life. Uh, but um, I'd been brought up to sort of stand up straight and look people in the eyes. And when the presiding bishop at the selection conference looked at me and said, "Do you think you're truly called?" I I stood up and looked him in the eyes and said, "Yes," and I believed I was. But no, I don't think I would have got. I didn't have enough really background experience, I think, to get through today. And then you went to Cudston to train for ordination. Yeah. What what was that experience like? Well. I think that Cudston was very, very committed to forming you in a life of prayer and regular discipline of saying morning and prayer and evening prayer. And uh, and that has, has stuck with me. And I think that is actually very, very good something to, to have it, to, to get, in, in, you know, to become part of one from an early, early age. And in terms of um, a wider influence. It wasn't nearly so influential as Wales Theological College when I went to later on to lecture in, in ethics, because Cudston was moving rather slowly in my days in the early, early ni- 1960s. It was very kind of traditional theology, not sure that it really faced up to the kind of new world that we were living in. But when I went to Wales Theological College, I think we had very much begun to try to uh, reckon with a, a very different world in which we were trying to, to minister. But in terms of spiritual discipline, the council was very important. And of course, it had that wonderful principal, Bob Brunsey, who became a, a lifelong uh, friend and was a very, very great human being. Of course, and is it, you're, during your time at Cudston, when you'd met Joe. Yes, indeed. Yes, we we met, and just at the end of our time in Cambridge, fell in love very quickly, got engaged very quickly, and then had a two-year curling off period while she finished off her medical training in London, and I was at Cudston. And then uh, I got ordained, and we got married at about the same time, which was you weren't meant to do, but we we did, and uh, then we went to Hampstead to our first little home. She was uh, uh, working in hospitals as a junior junior doctor and I was on my first curacy. Yes and that was your your first curacy was at St John Hampstead and that, that seems to have been a happy time and you, lots of talking with, with uh, younger Hampstead people. was a very very a very very happy time we had our own uh, our own first home and our first, our ch- two children were, were born it was a very supportive and friendly congregation and of course it was the 1960s and in the 1960s were an amazing time I mean, everything was turned upside down. All sort of restraints and inhibitions for good and ill were thrown thrown away. Um, and at the time of the Carnaby Street and parties, advent of drugs, unfortunately, sex came on board. Um, it was quite amazing time to live through. But what people forget is the 1960s was also a very, very idealistic time. And I knew a lot of young teenagers then who were all very idealistic people. They were not only wanting a much freer life, actually they wanted a life which was much more committed to doing good in the world in some way. And then your uh, the post came up at Wells Theological College, so you moved with your, I think you had young children by then, did yes. you, uh, to to Wells? And, and that was a very formative time, was it, in, in Wells? Yes, Wells was very informative because the the discipline of having to lecture week in, week out 
on basic doctrines. I uh, took doctrine one, which is doctrine of God, basically, doctrine of God and doctrine of Christ and, and ethics. One year on, I used to lecture on doctrine, next year on ethics. And that actually laid a foundation for everything that I've done since then, because you only really begin to learn a subject when you have to teach it, when you suddenly find actually you so know little about it, you better really learn something yourself in rather greater depth. So no, that was that was hugely influential. And also, the life at Wales at that time is very much organized around small groups and actually life in small groups is very very important and it was influential when I uh, went to, on to become a you know a parish priest I always used to try to set up small groups in the parish because it's in the interaction of people within small groups actually that people can really begin to change their lives. Yes you went on from Wales to All Saints Fulham I, I was interested you write people are sometimes surprised when I say it was easier to be a bishop than a vicar what what were the particular challenges of parish? Yes, well, because as a bishop, you're actually extraordinarily well protected. If people have to get through the ex telephone exchange and then um, perhaps uh, as a secretary or a chaplain or something, you know, you're pretty protected. But uh, as a vicar, you're at everybody's beck and call. You know, there's a knock on the door in the middle of the night and somebody wants the keys for the church hall or something. You know, you are very, very exposed and that can be quite wearing. Sorry, if I forgot to ask you about your time as Dean of King's College London. Of course, that was where there was um, at, at King's College London, a very, um, a very noted war studies department you write about. Yes. Was that where you're thinking about nuclear deterrence yes. and the question of yes. ethics of war came? King's, King's College London was wonderful in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways in, in which it was very influential on me is that I got very involved in the nuclear debate. Uh, it was the height of the Cold War. The issue of nuclear weapons is very much on the agenda. Um, I'd actually started a, a, a PhD uh, on aspects of, of just war theory, the, pro, the, the principle of proportion and the principle of discrimination, done a great deal of academic work on that. And that chimed in very well with being able to be a member of a number of think tanks. I was vice chairman of the Council for Arms Control, the War Studies. So I got very involved in these issues and did a lot of public debate with people like Bruce Kent and Paul Roy Stryker, arguing for a multilateral disarmament rather than a unilateral disarmament. And, and so you saw it as necessary to have some sort of nuclear deterrent rather than decommissioning yes, weapons? Yes, um, I have to say with moral fear and spiritual trembling, these are very, very, very terrible, terrible weapons. Um, but I think the decisive factor is that for the first time in human history, it could never, ever be in the interest of one nuclear power to go to war with another nuclear power. There is a nuclear stalemate, uh, and that can keep things from expanding further. So that is a very decisive factor. Uh, but uh, I don't think it is a, a very easy subject at all to think about as their, their, their deployment from an ethical point of view. As, a, as I say, uh, it, is, it is a very worrying area morally and spiritually. But then you receive a letter from the Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Um, asking you to be the next Bishop of Oxford. Well, I mean, was, did that really come out of the blue? Was that... Yes, the, the invitation from the Prime Minister to be Bishop of Oxford came totally, totally out of the, the, the blue. I was extremely happy in my job as Dean of King's College London, which oh, was a really one, wonderful job. We had our own house uh, in, in, in London, and that, of course, was a rather lovely thing uh, to do. We had a much more kind of normal 
life, more time with the, with the family, as well as in the college being able to do all sorts of things that I really wanted to do. And I didn't follow church appointments. I had no idea that the Diocese of, of Oxford was vacant. Absolutely. And suddenly this rather smart looking envelope came through the door from Mrs. Thatcher saying, would I allow my name to go forward to be Bishop of uh, Oxford? Um, but of course, it's not something you can really refuse, frankly. So uh, somewhat reluctantly, because you know it was a big upheaval from something I was really enjoying, uh, we, we, we went. Let's talk about your, your time as, as Bishop of Oxford. You, you write that the first task of a diocesan bishop is to appoint good people. The second is to let them get on with it without yeah. inappropriate interfering. Yes. 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 Well, I mean, I was fortunate in being able to, to appoint a lot of good people. And most of the people I appointed as area bishops went on to be diocesan bishops in their own in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is now the Archbishop of York, for example. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it, that is wonderful being able to build up a team like that. We had a wonderful team, and the thing people sometimes ask me, do I miss anything about not being Bishop Oxford? But the only thing that I, I I miss really was was being part of a team, a team which had a shared sense of purpose and a lot of shared humour. That was a wonderful experience at the heart of being Bishop of Oxford, and and also let them get get on get on with it. In fact, there's a story against me told by. One of my bishops apparently was heard to say once, the good thing about the Bishop of Oxford is that he never interferes in the running of his own diocese. So- <laughs> <laughs> That's meant as a compliment, presumably. Yes. 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 Well, yes. I'm not sure whether it was meant as a compliment. Or take, uh, my motto is take everything as a compliment because it helps to ward off paranoia. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good attitude, yes. Um, and, and- you also wrote about a very difficult time as Bishop of Oxford was, was the appointment of, of Geoffrey John to be Bishop of Reading and was obviously in, in the news a lot and um, caused a, a great deal of, of difficulty. But you, you say that changed you, that episode. I mean, would, you, would you be mind speaking well, a bit about what happened well, and well, how it, it changed made, you? It made me absolutely adamant uh, um, about wanting gay people to be fully accepted in the church. I had certainly I'd been very, very positive before and to some extent, I suppose, a campaigner. But when I discovered that actually the person who's head and shoulders, the best person for the job, was not going to be appointed because he was gay and he had a gay partner, this I found absolutely outrageous. Um, and that made me absolutely adamant to, to be firm on, on this issue as well as, as well as other issues. It was a very difficult time because a number of the conservative evangelical churches, which were very big, you know, called me forward for meetings and wanted me to withdraw the nomination, which I wasn't happy happy to do. But it was a it was a very difficult time, not so much for me, but of course for poor Geoffrey John, who was harried by the na- national press. I mean, we see this hap- happening again today, don't we, with with the House of, House of Bishops um, proposals on same-sex blessings and then opposition coming from conservative evangelicals. I mean, do, do you feel things have moved on or what, does it depress you that there are still these? Well, I mean, we I think we have to accept the fact that institutions do change very, very slowly. And the point about an institution is that they garner the best insights of one generation to pass them on to other generations, which means they're inevitably rather, rather slow. Um, and I'm not surprised that churches have been taken a long time to change their mind on this. 
I mean, I, I regret it. I mean, my own view is that as soon as the civil partnerships were allowed legally, the church should immediately have said, we'd be willing to bless these. And I think actually that would have taken a lot of the steam out of the actual desire to actually have, have, you know, marriages in a traditional sense. If we'd been willing to bless civil partnerships right from the word, the word go. But of course, the debate is far from concluded uh, but there has been some movement, and now it looks as though the Church of England is going to allow these partnerships to be blessed, uh, which is something. You're also a prominent advocate of the ordination of women. Um, in that change, you, your bishop when women could be ordained priests and then subsequently consecrated bishops. I mean, how, how has that changed the Church of England, do you think? Well, I think it's made the Church of England a much healthier place. Uh, certainly, if I find myself in an all-meeting, male meeting now, it feels very, very uncomfortable. If you have a meeting with roughly the same number of women, the same number of men, it just feels healthier altogether. You also write about the, I think, seven archbishops of Canterbury you've known. Um, yeah. We probably don't have time to, to go through them all. I just wonder if any, looking back now, having written about them, particularly stand out as influential well they're all they were all they were all very different i don't think i'd want to make a judgment between any of them but it is it just it is quite extraordinary that i did happen to know seven of them not not all of them well of course i didn't know jeffrey fisher well but i had an encounter quite an amusing encounter with 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 jeffrey fisher and and i write about them because actually i write about jeffrey fisher things which most people don't know actually people think of him primarily as an administrator but what i show in relation to the Suez campaign, for example, mm. actually, not only uh, was he ruthlessly honest in harrying the government over this, but also actually he had uh, a far more profound theology in his approach to the whole issue than many people have given him credit for. But yes, no, it's been a privilege to, to, to know Stephen Bishop's Academy. You also write about the, the Prime Minister's you. Um, Met because I guess Checkers was in your diocese, wasn't it? So you were invited yeah. for lunch. Um, yeah. was, I was interested your your views on um, just war or, or multilateralism. I mean, you write that you were drawn in that sense to Tony Blair's thinking of, of liberal interventionism, but on, only so far, given what happened. Yeah, so I, I was a supporter of Tony Blair's championing of the United Nations responsibility to protect. I mean, the United Nations have a powerful doctrine of the responsibility to protect vulnerable communities, and, and Tony Blair was a very keen advocate of, 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 of that. Unfortunately, of course, it has been discredited because of the invasion of Iraq, which turned out to be so badly. Uh, uh, and I actually opposed the invasion of, of Iraq. I didn't think it was a dishonorable decision. I could see the justification for it, but I thought it was a tragically mistaken judgment. If you take all things into account and look at seriously at just war criteria, uh, I don't believe that it fulfilled just war criteria. So I opposed it at the, uh, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the time. But I think one of the down aspects of um, the Iraq war having turned out so badly is that we must not give up the idea of responsibility to protect all altogether. I do think the international community has, does have does have responsibilities and countries have responsibilities outside their own countries. That doesn't mean to say we want one country always interfering with the other, but there are certain extreme situations where it may, may be necessary for the United Nations to, to intervene to protect a vulnerable group, which is perhaps being uh, totally eliminated. 
I mean, you, you you reprioritized time in the House of Lords when you were bishop, didn't you? Was it was it a day a week that you carved out yes, in your diary? If you, as a bishop, if you're going to do anything in the House of Lords, you've got to put in a reasonably regular appearance. Otherwise, you're just just not in touch with what is going on. So, being not far from London in Oxford, being able to get to London pretty pretty quickly, uh, and also having an an area system where so there are the three area bishops who can do a lot of the day by day 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 work. I was able to give at least a, a day a week to it, and you know, be reasonably involved. Obviously, bishops vary a great deal. If you're living in the north of England mm. and you don't have any assistance mm. in the diocese, it's very very difficult, and your your diary gets mortgaged for a year ahead. And a, and a really significant area you, you contributed um, in in the Lords was was it was in the area of bioethics. Is that right? I, yes, I did chair the House of Lords Select Committee on embryo research, embryo. Uh, um, which recommended that uh, research on embryos should be allowed up to 14, 14 days, and that that was our recommendation of our committee, and that did eventually uh, go through. Yes, that was one of the areas in which I was involved in. Yeah. Um, was that something you'd, you'd grappled with ethically? And I mean, it wasn't. Well, without... yes, it wasn't. It wasn't one of my wasn't one of my major areas. So shortly after the, that, I was appointed to be a member of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. So I did get very involved in it for a number of years, and also on the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, I was a member of for a number of years. So it was an area in which I did get involved in, but it's not my, not hasn't been my major uh, major area. And obviously, you took on a, a prominent role in in the media. I mean, not with prayer for the day and then thought for the day, but also you know national newspaper articles, interviews. Um, because that's about that side of your ministry as as a, a voice for faith in in the public square. Because you you talk about apologetics and quote Donald McKinnon saying apologetics yeah. it's the lowest form of Christian life. <laughs> yeah. You seek don't you to carve out a a different approach to making a a, a Christian case. On issues. Well, I think uh, it's not so much explicit apologetics, but it's implicit uh, apologetics in that uh, whenever I'm speaking on a public platform, I have to believe, have to reckon with the fact very, very seriously that most of the people one speaks to are a million miles away from the Christian faith. They find the Christian faith strange, what goes in church a bit alien. They have all sorts of very proper questions on their mind. And so it's a question of not taking anything for granted and trying to re- realise where where people are and try to, to actually formulate my words in such a way as actually it relates to where they are, not where I would actually love them to be. Is, is some of that a question of language? I was just reading Matthew Paris in The Spectator today saying, he, he thinks a lot of Christians almost use a private language, which is incomprehensible to people outside the church. So is there a need to articulate Christian? Yeah, I must read that article by Matthew. Matthew Parrish is always very, very interesting, actually, yeah. on theological uh, on theological issues. Um, I think what has happened is that since the time I was ordained in 1963 and now, the Christian faith has become essentially strange to people. In 1963, when I was ordained, although there wasn't a vastly greater number of people who actually attended church, when I went out in the streets, I could assume a basic knowledge of the Christian faith and a basic assumption that people thought, well, this was a good thing. Uh, and this is what we all, one way or another, shared, you know, even if even rather weakly. All that has now gone. We live, I think, in terms of cultural sensibility in a totally, totally different world. Uh, where the basic Christian concepts are strange to people. 
uh, and we just have to take this this in, into in, into a, into account. So I don't think Matthew Paris is right in saying that it's a private language. It was a public language, yes. but it's now become a, a language which most people in our society find it very difficult to enter into. And, and we alluded to earlier, but the, the problem of, of suffering and evil is something you take extremely seriously. I've written you know, a whole book about and, and other things about. And you say this, for me, has always been the big question. I mean, how, how have you sought to address it, or have you reconciled yourself to the problem of suffering? Uh, well, uh, I, I did write a book called uh, The Beauty and the Horror, mm. Searching for God and Suffering World, which is my... And there are, there, there are various apologetic moves one can make uh, I mean, I believe, for example, that if God wanted to make people like us, we have to have a universe more or less like the one we have at the moment, where there is genuine autonomy, genuine freedom, where there is regularity in nature. These things make it possible not only for life to exist, but for conscious life, self-conscious life and rational national choice. All this I can make, makes perfectly sense. But the big question for me is, given the fact that this whole evolutionary process has involved so much suffering, you know, was God justified in creating the world in the first place? And that raises the question as whether there is a, a wonderful consummation or outcome where ultimately all things will be reconciled, not only to God, but to, 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 to one another. I, I believe that Christianity is totally committed to belief in an afterlife. I know a lot of people sit a bit like this, but I believe it is a fundamental plank in the Christian faith. Uh, and also, I believe that Julian Nor Norwich's statement, you know, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, for me is also a fundamental affirmation of faith. But what is so difficult to, to, to do is to believe how it can be either imaginatively possible or morally possible for that ultimate reconciliation to take place. It's the Ivan Karamazov question. Can you actually imagine that one, somebody who's tortured rising up and forgiving the person who's tortured them? Uh, and can you imagine this on a large scale, on a universal scale? Uh, I mean, the mind literally does boggle. So that that is where I find, I find the, the, the kind of, the kind of real difficulty. There must be a wonderful consuming outcome where all things are indeed reconciled to one another. Uh, but can that really be brought about? Can it really be brought about? Well, under the grace of God, we have faith and hope that it will be. That's funny, can I just ask you, you write towards the end of the book about the, the future of the Church of England and, and Christian faith more widely. I mean, you're you acknowledge uh, the trends of secularism in the West, but you're also hopeful. And what, what gives you hope for the future? Well, I think that people go on asking the big questions, don't they? Uh, at the end of Philip Larkin's wonderful poem on church going, he said, said about churches, they'll always be there because people will be surprising a desire to be more serious within themselves. You know, there are all human beings occasionally, however worldly they might have those moments when they surprise themselves with a desire to be more serious. So those questions will always be there. I think that the sort of fashionable disdain in the media for the Christian faith, which has dominated really for the last 10 or 15 years, at least, if not longer, I think there are some signs that that is beginning uh, to pass. Very, very, very tiny, tiny, tiny signs. I don't see Christianity becoming a mass movement again. I mean, I think perhaps Christianity uh, is always meant to be actually a, a, a minority 
movement. I mean, if Christianity becomes something which is fashionable, uh, as it has some sometimes in the past, there seems to be some perhaps something rather funny about the Christian faith, which is actually being being preached. But no, I'm I am hopeful, and of course, as we know, some churches in our country are growing. Uh, congregations which are predominantly uh, black are growing, not just the Pentecostal churches, but also Anglican and Anglican churches. You know, as has been said, you know, the future Christianity in our country lies with the black working class. You know, if the white English middle class have thrown away their inheritance, this has actually been taken up by the black working class, particularly in its Pentecostal form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.